Father, we, we praise you this morning for who you are, the maker and sustainer of all things, the provider of life, and, and more importantly, eternal life through, through the sending of your Son. We thank you for bringing us here um, once again so that we may worship you in your church. We pray this morning as we um, study on the topic of prayer and in the Sunday school hour that you would um, open our eyes to the truth contained in your word. And as we think about praying for others and having the right um, presuppositions and thoughts that, that are necessary to, to rightly pray for others. Pray that you would grow us in, in love for each other, that we would grow in our unity in this body, that you would guard us against any resentment or division, that we would be a people that are marked by constantly praying for each other because we love each other. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we're continuing or, or jumping back into our series through the book Praying with Paul by D.A. Carson. And today is the first part of a two-part lesson on chapters 4 and 5 of the book. And both of these chapters are dealing with similar content. And we'll probably be spending more time in chapter 5 both this week and next week, but the general theme of both chapters is our need to pray for people. And then we're, we're going to, or Carson examines or, or has an examination of how Paul does pray for other people by looking at uh, a prayer in 1 Thessalonians 3. And that's going to be our, our main topic of study next week is kind of an analysis of that prayer. And specifically in these chapters, we're going to think through how we should pray for other Christians. Not just other people in general, but, but other Christians. And even more specifically, those Christians that we are in covenant relationship together within our, our own church membership. So the big idea we're going to be exploring is how to pray for the Christians God has placed in our life through the, through the local church. But a lot of these principles apply to praying for um, Christians in the, in the universal church or any Christians that you know, or just people generally. And today we're going to be dealing with mainly the, the right thoughts, the presuppositions we need to have to, to rightly pray for others. Namely, we're going to be talking a lot about our love for other Christians, which results in wanting what is best for them. A love that results in wanting what's best for our brothers and sisters in Christ. So Carson begins chapter 4 by talking about how, how many people might like the church for various reasons. It's a place to have like-minded friendships or can be viewed as a safe haven from the pressures, other pressures in our life or or maybe we just like the music or, or some aesthetic reason, right? There, there's, there's many reasons that, that we can like the church. But one thing that Carson points out that's often seen as a, as a big negative of 
church life is having to be in relationship with or, or deal with people we don't particularly enjoy being around in our flesh, in our sin. And this will inevitably happen in a church of probably more than three people, right? And Carson's point in, in starting this way is to show that within any, within any local church, there are going to be members of that congregation that are harder for you and I to get along with. And the quicker we come to that realization, the better, because, we'll, we'll, because we can begin to take steps to avoid growing in kind of disdain and resentment and maybe even outright hostility to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Carson points out this type of tension is inevitable because the church is a people. It's not, it's not a building. It's a group of regenerate, redeemed sinners that God has brought together to be in fellowship together. But we know from, from our theological beliefs that we confess, and probably even more likely because of our experience, we know that we're all still sinners. We still battle, struggle, fight sin, which means there are difficulties in this community of saints. We can call these interpersonal difficulties. So in short, because we are the church and we, we are still sinful in various ways, interpersonal relationships are strained. They can, they can be difficult. Not all the time, but, but they can be. But since the church is a people, and fellowship amongst that people is central to what the church is, then, then fostering relationships and fellowship within the local church is massively important for our, our Christian life. This is why I think the rise of, of small group ministries and, and other various fellowship events in our time, I think they're, they're really beneficial because they serve the church in, in growing in these interpersonal relationships. It helps foster connections and, and love for members within the body. And Carson talks for a bit in this chapter of, of twin dangers that the church faces. So on the one end, there's a danger of focusing too much on the people in the church. That the people, us, become the, the main point of any ministry of the church. And, and so the, the, the goal is shifted from glorifying God to kind of just pleasing or, or maintaining the, the people. This is what he's calling in this chapter humanitarian ministry. On the other extreme, we can claim right, high intimacy with God and, and worship of Him while fostering no intimacy with people or no closeness with other Christians. And I think how that danger works out practically is claiming intimacy with God while holding on to, I mean, on, on, on one far extreme, holding on to bitterness and resentment to other Christians. But even just more simply, this is good, could just be being cold to other Christians or just not being friendly, not being friends with other Christians. Like having a culture like that within a congregation is very dangerous. And we know from the scripture that there's really no place for, for either of those dangers, but, but in particular the, the second danger of not having any um, 
close friendships, love between the body, even the, the, the opposite of that, hate and resentment in the body, has no place. John tells us in 1 John 4, verses 19 through 21, if anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. So, so based on a text like this, Carson argues that's very, that in a very important sense, our love for God, we can say it is tested by our love for other Christians. Right? It's not an optional thing for us to, to love the brothers and sisters in the faith. It's not something we can, we can choose to do on Sunday and then neglect to do on Thursday. It's, it's a command for all of our life. We must, right? So notice that language. We must love the brothers and sisters in the church. Carson writes, when we live up to our calling, we remember that in God's church, people do not set the agenda. They are the agenda. Our allegiance to God and His gospel will be demonstrated by our service to His people. Our allegiance to God and His gospel will be demonstrated in our service to His people. And so it's with that, this truth and understanding of, of the Christians, of, of our love for each other, that Carson argues that, that part of loving each other, a, a large part of loving each other, is a commitment to further what is best for each other, what is best for other Christians. And a commitment for the overall, just what, what Carson calls the overall well-being for the brothers and sisters in the faith, faith. Which leads to the question, which is a really important question. This is what we, we all have to face in, in our own personal lives. And, and the lives of, as we're thinking about loving other Christians in our life, is, is what is best for us? What is best for us? What is best for other Christians? And the answer to this question of what's best for God's people, I would argue it must be tied to our confession that Jesus is, is Lord. So when we ask what is best for people, our answer will ultimately be what Jesus thinks is best for people. So not necessarily what, what we think is best for people, but our, our ideas, our thoughts, our motives, they must be submitted to the Lord Jesus and to the Scriptures to know what is best for people. Now all of this, thinking of the, the Christian's obedience to the command to love other Christians, and that love displaying and wanting what is best for Christians, all of that, Carson is arguing, is tied to prayer. And he points out that, that this is important to point out because there are some disciplines or there's some emphasis of prayer in the church today that, that focus entirely on the one praying and the effect on the one praying. 
So Carson is seeking to correct kind of the self-centered view of prayer, that type of thinking, to, to show and to prove what a holistic view of prayer must necessarily include a proper and good understanding of praying for others or, or how we're to, to intercede on behalf of others. And Carson goes on to argue that, that if we look at the New Testament authors, and again specifically the, the writings of Paul, we see that a large portion of the space in, in these writings are dedicated to, to just prayers for other Christians. Now that emphasis from Paul, Carson's emphasis in this chapter, it doesn't mean that we should not pray for ourselves or that a prayer with a focus on God is and, and maybe what God has done. Or it doesn't mean we should just completely neglect that. Those are also both necessary char characteristics of a healthy prayer life, a good and biblical prayer life. And we have other biblical evidence that, that proves that for us. Carson points to the, to the Psalms as a book given to us that includes a massive amount of prayers that has, some, some just are just praises of Yahweh or requests that serve the needs and interests of the one praying. So it's clearly not wrong to do this. We, we should be praying to God for the, just simply to the praise and adoration of Him, or praying for our, our own personal desires and needs. But in this chapter, Carson argues, with Paul in particular, he emphasizes praying for others. And what he does in chapter 4 of, of the book, I think, is, is pretty effective. And so for most of the chapter, pages 49 to, to 55 in your book, or at least the, the new version of the book, what Carson does is just list out every prayer, prayer of Paul to show the, the focus of these prayers. And he encourages us to read them all at once, just to read them back to back to back to back to back. And the point is, it's just going to show us, if you do that, the value Paul has of praying for others. And I probably should have mentioned this in, in the previous week, but, but Carson mentions it again in this section. When he's talking about the prayers of Paul, Carson has in mind a few different types of texts, or, or what he calls four groups of texts. So, so first, you have the actual prayers or, or where Paul is praying as he writes or recording a prayer, he's speaking. The, the second group of texts is, is prayer reports where Paul tells his readers of his prayers that he has been praying in the past. Third is prayer wishes where Paul refers to God in, in the third person, something like, may the God of all peace do such and such. We see these, these quite frequently. This is really close to the first group of texts. And the final group is exhortations to pray. So all of those are included in this book of what, what Carson has in mind when he's thinking about the prayers of Paul. And so, again, pages 49 and 59, or from 49 to 55 in chapter 4, Carson just lists out all these prayers. I don't even remember the number of texts, but it's a lot. And it's really, it's really effective. And I encourage you to just read that section if you haven't this week slowly just going through them. 
And Carson's reason in, in putting all these prayers of Paul in this chapter is to make the point just obviously clear to us. Obviously clear that praying for others is massively important if we're following Paul's model of prayer. So prayer can't just be something solely for ourselves and the benefits to our own spiritual life. Though again, it does benefit us greatly. Carson writes, Prayer will never descend to the level where it is nothing more than a retreat house in which we find strength for ourselves. So learning to pray with Paul necessarily means learning to pray for others. That's kind of the big argument of chapter 4. Learning to pray with, with Paul means learning to pray for others. And by studying Paul's prayers, we see that a, a part of our responsibility in loving others is approaching God with, with thanksgiving for others or, or intercession on behalf of others. Because, and this is key, by praying for others to God is the only way we can seek the best for the people of God. Or, or said more simply, praying for others is necessary for loving others. Praying for other Christians is necessary for loving other Christians. And if that's true, and we're commanded to love other Christians, then what does that conclude? We must, we all listen, yes, Candace, say it loud. There you go. Pray for other Christians, yes. Let's pause here for any questions or comments. I was reading this and I was like, this seems pretty basic Christian 101 stuff, but it's still good, really good. Yeah, I think that's really wise, and I think in that sense is why it's, it's included in the spiritual disciplines. Usually, like it's a discipline that we have to, to cultivate and... and schedule our life around. It's really helpful. Yeah. Dick said, I don't know if you heard, but he said, it's not just that we pray for Christians to love them, but we have to pray for everybody to love them. So there's awful people out there, and the call of the Christian is to um, to love them, and which necessarily means to, to be praying for those awful people. Which we'll get into later, I think, in later weeks. Those prayers for the awful people and our brothers and sisters of the faith, they're going to be different. We have accounts in Scripture of how to be praying for against wickedness or wicked actions than um, praying for the brothers and sisters in the faith. But, well said. Now, now Carson says two things we need to have in mind when we think about loving our Christian brothers and sisters and having the best for them in our minds in our prayers, and the first is that, that we must always submit, and I've already just said this, so I feel like a, a, I'm repeating myself, but that's okay. First is that we must always submit our definition of what is best for others to God, which means we need to, to go to God's Word and the prayers in God's Word to know what we need to be praying for others. That's the whole point of this book study. That's the whole point of the, the Sunday School series. And I think uh, this just makes sense of our view of Scripture. So just as Scripture shapes our view on ethics, 
and parenting, our belief about creation, or, or whatever topic, right? Scripture is the norm, the, 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 the standard by which we submit all of our thoughts to. So scriptures should also form how we pray for others. And we'll see what, how Paul does this in, in chapter 5 when we look explicitly at, at the, the text in 1 Thessalonians 3. The second thing we need to think about when considering what is best for people is, is what Carson calls us to do is to constantly be examining our own hearts. To be examining our own hearts. This is a, very similar to what, what Blake just said. So a tragic reality in, in this age of sin is that much prayer is not done, especially in the church, much prayer is not done because of jealousy, resentment, even, even hatred, outright hostility between people in the church, in the body of Christ. So we feel bitter towards someone in the congregation or just the, the, the church universal at large. Say both of these things are true. We feel bitterness or resentment. One result of that feeling is that we'll neglect to be praying for them. We, we, we won't be praying for them. I think this just makes sense. Just ask yourself, how often do you actually pray for people that you resent? And the effect is also true. It's, it's hard to resent someone that you're frequently praying for. It's kind of that, that, that test that Blake was talking about. Right? If we feel like this irritation and bitterness or resentment is growing in us towards someone, then an effective thing to do is add them to the top of your list to be praying for. And that resentment will decline, hopefully. And this is really a symptom of a larger issue that, of, of why we don't often pray. And Carson spends some time here talking about one of the main factors in our neglect to pray is unconfessed sin. So citing from places like Isaiah 59, the book of Malachi, he, he cites, I think, three or four different passages from Malachi, makes the point that, that Scripture frequently tells us there are a number of sins that will negatively affect our prayer lives if we do not if we're not in, in confession and repentance of those sins. Because at the root, sin always affects our intimacy or our closeness with God. And prayer is kind of the mechanism, the avenue of that intimacy with God, our communication with God through the Spirit. And the point here is that that one sin that, that, that seems to be common in our day, and I would argue it's common in every age, in the church is kind of these interpersonal conflicts of bitterness, resentment, hostility between Christians, which inevitably cuts us off from effective intercession on behalf of those Christians. Carson writes, Sheer bitterness, nurtured resentment, nicely preserved grudges, it's a nice phrase, nicely preserved grudges, a desperate want of forgiveness, this is pitifully common among us, talking about the church at large. And, and, and the very sad part about these realities in the church is that Jesus, right, the, our Lord, the King, has 
clearly commanded us for this not to occur in the church. He's commanded us to forgive one another. Matthew 6, 14. Or Mark eleven twenty five when he says, And when you stand praying, and if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. This is really Christianity 101. Since we have been forgiven of so much through the blood of Jesus, we must now extend forgiveness and mercy to the brothers and sisters. So Carson's charge here to to end this chapter, chapter 4, is that if we are truly serious of reforming our prayer lives, to, to bring them more in line with the scriptures, specifically in the area of faithfully praying for other Christians, if that's our aim, then we must start with our own hearts. He writes, unconfessed sin, nurtured sin, will always be a barrier between God and those he has made in his image. And Carson goes pretty far here. I don't know if I thought, I think he's probably right, but it's pretty intense. He goes as far as to say, if we are people that harbor bitterness and we harbor resentment against other Christians, then praying is little more than wasted time and wasted effort. I think, I think his words are hard here, but I think they're, they're, they're pressing on something that's really important. That that type of resentment, that type of hostility, that type of unforgiveness has no place amongst the people of God. And it's a crippling type of sin because it makes us ineffective and one of our, our main areas of calling, the calling for every Christian, for all of us, which is to love one another, the thing we've been hammering home this morning. So, say it again, it's very hard to love someone that you are resenting or hating. So we really need to guard against, protect against, resentment, need to guard against unforgiveness in our midst. I think Rob had a question. That's great. Thanks for sharing that. It's a good, good reminder. All right, let's move on to, to chapter 5. And for this portion, we need our Bibles, which is good. Open them to 1 Thessalonians 3. We're going to get through part of this chapter, then the rest will be finished um, next week, Lord willing. So chapter 5 is a study on, in particular, 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 9 through 13. Um, But Carson talks a lot about the context of the prayer. So I'm going to read from starting in 2.17 all the way through the end of 3. So 2.17, 1 Thessalonians to the end of three. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? for you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, 
our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you in our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So Carson could have picked a lot of texts of Paul to show how he prays for people, but, but he argues this text is particularly re relevant because in it we see some of Paul's deepest emotions in all of the New Testament for the people of God. So we see in this text Paul's profound concern for the Thessalonians, for his readers, which comes out in the prayer he prays for them, for them in, in verses 9 through, through 13. And all, all that I just read, the surrounding context of the prayer displays all of this deep emotion that he has for God's people. So the first thing to look at is, is kind of the surrounding context of the prayer. And the first thing we see in, in 2.17 through 3.8 in 1 Thessalonians, is that Paul's prayer for the Thessalonian Christians stems for his passion for people. So this is kind of Carson's main idea here in, in this section of the chapter, that, that Paul has a passion for people. And specifically what we see is his prayer arises from his great desires and longing to be with the Thessalonians. I think that's, that's very clear from the text as we read it. Carson starts here by telling of, of Paul's history with the congregation, which I think is good background for us. We can see the report of Paul planting the church in Thessalonica in Acts 17, verses 1 through 9. So Paul uh, evangelized in, in Thessalonica. He, he planted a church there. Right? So that means some got saved. So he planted a church. Just a few, after a few weeks, the, the, the opposition and persecution got strong enough where he, he felt it was best for him to leave. He'd go on to mission works in Berea, Athens, and then to, to Corinth. So it's with that context that we see Paul looking back. He's looking back at the churches he just recently planted. He's virtually spent very little time there, maybe a few weeks at most, discipling and training them. 
Notice that, that despite that the short time of Paul being with these new Christians, he still has a deep, deep love for them. He has deep concern for them. That's how he can say in 2.17 that he's more eager and with great desire to see the Thessalonians face to face. And in 3.1, that, that he could bear it no longer, so he actually sent Timothy to establish and exhort them in the faith, to make sure they were doing okay. Are, the, are these saints still following the Christian way? And a big key here is that, that Paul had a passion for these people despite not knowing them very well at all, simply because of the fact that they were Christians, because they accepted the message of the gospel. They professed faith. If they were in Christ, they were in the body of Christ, therefore Paul loved them and loved them deeply. As Carson says, what we have in this text is a Christian, Paul, so committed to the well-being of other Christians, especially those new in the faith, that he's simply burning up inside to be with them. He wants to help them, to, to teach them, to nurture them, to stabilize them, to give them a, a firm foundation. Right? That, that's Paul's beating heart in the text, his motivation. His love for these Christians. So it, it should not surprise us, a guy like that will then pray for these brothers and sisters in the faith. And Carson points out this isn't just what we find in Thessalonians, but this type of passion for people is very typical for Paul in, in all of his writings. He's a passionate man who, who's deeply enmeshed in the lives of people, of real people, and he has real concerns and love for these people. Carson writes well here. Speaking of Paul, he says, This is not someone intoxicated with ideas but unconcerned about people, nor is it someone who is content to minister at a distance through the books he has written, perhaps, or through younger emissaries. No, this man's ministry is designed first and foremost not to produce ideas, books, or junior colleagues, but to serve the people of God. And to this, he's passionately committed. And that passion shapes the prayers he utters on their behalf. And I think this is a, a really good reminder for us as we, as we walk through this text, that we too, as believers in Christ, taking our cues from Scripture, should, should likewise be motivated out of love out of a love for other Christians. As I stated, this is what we just talked about earlier. This is the clear command of Scripture, that we're to love one another. We must have a similar disposition like Paul does for people, especially for, for Christians, where we, are not, where we are not primarily concerned about but us, not primarily concerned about our needs, our desires, but we're concerned about those Christians that God has placed in our lives. The, the second point Carson writes regarding Paul and his passion for people, based on the context of these verses, is that Paul's prayer arises that, that seeks the good for other Christians. So it arises out of him seeking the good for other Christians. Carson sets this in contrast 
to what we may think is best for others. So this section has a lot of overlap to what we saw in chapter four, what we've already talked about, it's just, but it's good to just hammer it home. So some things that Christians may be motivated by are, are their praise, their, their gratitude, their acceptance, maybe a, like in, in pastoral ministry, uh, a sense of professional fulfillment. That's definitely a temptation. But if we look, right, those are not the reasons Paul is praying for these Christians. Right? He, he's praying just simply for their well-being. He wants their faith to flourish. He wants these Christians to be okay. And Carson spends a lot of time in this chapter arguing how important this point is for our understanding of, of praying for others. And it's important here because Paul can serve as a model for all Christians because in Paul, in this text, we see a proper disposition to, to have towards other Christians. And really what, what Carson it, is saying about Paul's love for others, or he, he's setting Paul's love for others in opposition to a, a care that's really only focused on our own self-fulfillment, which is a danger that we all face in the Christian life. I think this is a particular danger for elders and pastors and kind of any leadership in a church, but the danger can be there for any Christian Carson focuses on, on pastors who say they're, they're doing things out of service for the church. But in reality, what they, they really desire is to, feel, to, to be fulfilled, to feel fulfilled in what they're doing. So a preacher may come to love the act of preaching more than the actual teaching and exhortation of the flock that God has given them. Or a church organist, or to put the illustration into our century, because he wrote this in the 90s, a, a, a church guitar player right, might become bitter, not willing to change based on, on the song leader's advice, because their self-identity is bound up in public performance of music, that any thought of actually serving the body becomes suppressed. So notice right, the danger Carson's trying to highlight. I think it's an important one because we can be prone to go down this path. It's something that he's mentioned before in this book. It's when self-fulfillment becomes the rule or goal of our Christian service, then we've totally abandoned what the Christian life is supposed to be about, which is self-sacrifice, not self-fulfillment. Right? The pouring out of ourselves for the purpose of building up and encouraging others, that is what it means to be a Christian. That is what it means to, to live in the church together. So Carson urges us as readers to be like Paul, who, whose rule, ruling question for Paul is not how, I, how, I, how can I feel most useful, but rather how can I be most useful. Right? Notice the distinction. It's not primarily about the feelings Paul gets about being fulfilled, but it's actually, how can I actually best serve? How can I actually love these people? The goal for Paul is how he can best glorify God by serving people. Again, set this in contrast to this idea of how I can feel most comfortable and appreciated while engaging in Christian ministry or engaging in the service of, of the body of Christ. 
Carson writes, the assumption is how shall the Christian the assumption is how shall the Christian service to which God calls me be enhanced by my daily death, by my principled commitment to take up my cross daily and die? Not how shall the form of service I'm considering enhance my livelihood or career? So again, he's particularly talking about, about pastors here and elders, but it applies to, to all Christians generally. Now, just a point of clarification. I feel like I kind of have to do this with Carson sometimes. But he's not arguing. He's not saying that we shouldn't enjoy our Christian service. Right? It's not bad that Blake loves to preach. We shouldn't go yell at Blake for that. It's, it's really good that he loves to preach. He, God has given him a passion to do that. It's not bad that you enjoy that, that Christian service that God has equipped you to do or gifted you to do. But what Carson is warning against is making that joy that you get from that service central or the goal of your Christian service, the goal of life. Or what he calls the the fundamental criterion that controls our choices. I think it's a really helpful way to think about it. We need to guard against this, this, what it is, is an idolatrous form of Christian service which, which relates to our love for other Christians. Because then what happens, and it relates because we, we're not actually loving others if we're using them to fulfill something that, that we desire, to, to fulfill some felt need within us. But that's not actually how we love people according to Scripture. We love people through, through, through the denial of the self, through self-sacrifice. And one way... The whole big point of this, aside from Carson, which is not really an aside, but the whole point is one way we can guard against this type of temptation towards self-fulfillment is by simply looking at Paul, by looking to be imitators of, of Paul, whose passion for people actually did come from really wanting what's best for them. And that, that's a key foundation necessary to have proper prayers for others. So, so look back now at, at chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. I'm going to read them again. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it had just that it, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. So again, just notice we can see in these verses, we see a man that has deep love and concern for these believers. And he's in agony, really, out of, the, out of his concern for, for what? For their, for their well-being, for their good, for their spiritual good, for their ultimate good. He wants to be assured that they're standing firm in their faith under the, the persecution, under the afflictions that they're going through. He wants to strengthen them wants to encourage them in their faith. All of this is what Carson calls the, the proper heart 
to have for others as we're, as we're thinking about praying for others. It's not just that, that Paul wants to be with them. He doesn't just want to be with them to hang out and have a potluck, covered dish. It's, that's not his main goal, although he wants to do those things. He wants to be with them for their good so that they will thrive spiritually, that they will flourish in their walk with the Lord. And this is what is key for us when we're thinking about our prayers for others, because what we see from Paul here and his desire for the good of other Christians is what Carson calls um, elementary Christianity, meaning this is basic to what it means to be a Christian. He describes, Christ Jesus came to us, choosing to be with us, And this for our good. He, that's Jesus, chose the path of self-denial, dying in excruciating shame and degradation so that others might live. He calls us to serve the same way, not by lording it over others, but by open-eyed death to self-interest for the good of others. Death to self-interest for the good of others. So this is the the hallmark of Christian living, which I think it it, it very clearly is the hallmark of Christian living, then we need to strive to desire the good of others through the the, the sacrifice of our our self, of our own desires. Especially in the household of faith, especially in the local church. This is where the the context where this love, this type of self-sacrificial pouring out is displayed Christians. And Paul's prayer for these Christians are are nothing more than an extension of the same love he has for them. And the the, the prayers he's praying for them is just the overflow of the love that he has for them. So I'll pause here. Any questions or comments? Concerns? I don't want to start the next section, so we're actually just going to stop, so we should just talk. Or we could just stop. Ow, this table, what in the world? Okay. Well, it was a week for me. I had to read it and write it. No, I, it, it is, I think it is, convey, he, Carson writes the whole book, um, I think, seeking to prick the conscience and to prick us. Um, but it's, I think it's ultimately encouraging because the, the solution is not really anything radical. I mean, it's what he says. It's Christianity 101. It's just basic self-denial, which is what we're called to do in Christ, is to daily pick up our, our cross deny ourselves, and to follow the Lord. Um, and we can do that because we have done that. That is, what, that is our calling. That is what we do as Christians. And so in that sense, it, I think it's, it's pretty encouraging. Now, that's not easy, obviously. Christian life is not easy. But it is rewarding. It's where we find our flourishing. It's where we find um, true joy and contentment. And that's where we, we find our rest. Anything else? Yes.
Dick said, too often love is based on selfish needs, which I think is especially true these days. Something we, we have to protect against, guard against. Chapter 5. That's great. That's a great idea. I'll do that. Okay, and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Thank you for that benediction, Von. That is encouraging. You guys are dismissed.